Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Okay. Hello, everybody. I want to say uh, benvenuti and buonasera a tutti uh, to you all. Uh, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to um, this uh, Sydney Ideas uh, and other university-sponsored um, event. Uh, thank you very much uh, for coming. It's a very large crowd and uh, I think a very excited and talkative crowd. Uh, my name is John Keane. I am Professor of Politics here at the University of Sydney. I also had a hand in uh, founding and in uh, coordinating the Sydney Democracy Network, which has been in existence now for some years. Uh, we uh, sponsor research, we uh, promote uh, public education in the field of democracy, uh, and um, our associates are concerned with the past and the present, and to say the least, the very uncertain future of democracy. I want to acknowledge uh, that we meet on the lands of the Gadigal people, uh, the Gadigal people have uh, lived on uh, these lands for some 40,000 years. Some of the members of the Gadigal people uh, still live here in this area. I want to pay my respects uh, to their elders, uh, both past and present, and I want to say that their lands remain their lands and they will do so until there is some kind of reconciliation, some kind of agreement with uh, those uh, of us and our predecessors who occupied this land. Uh, there are many people who made tonight possible. Uh, it is, so to say, a new style in university public forums. Uh, uh, these things are costly and um, they work best when there are multiple partners. Tonight, I want to thank uh, Professor Alan McConnell from FRIS, which is the Faculty Research uh, Support Scheme, which has uh, helped uh, fund this evening. I want to thank as well SHARK. Um, this is a very interesting uh, acronym, SHARK. Uh, it's the Social Sciences Higher Research Body, and in particular, Professor Nick Enfield and Claire Stevens, who also contributed to this evening. I want to thank uh, Ira Ferris and um, Anna Burns from Sydney Ideas, and I want especially to thank our uh, SDN, Sydney Democracy Network team, above all, Lindy Baker and um, Janice Shweeting uh, Chang uh, for their many, many tireless efforts uh, in making this event uh, possible. Tonight, as you know, we're delighted and honored to welcome to Sydney for the first time Nadia Urbanati. I want to say a few words uh, uh, about uh, Nadia, if, if I may. Uh, Nadia was born in Rimini. Uh, and she tells me that at quite a young age, she began to read a lot of Gramsci and um, became something like a young teenage communist. Uh, this is a bit like breathing oxygen in this period in Italian politics, one could say. She went on to study uh, philosophy uh, at the University of Bologna. And later, she completed her doctorate in the social and political sciences at the Badia, at the European University Institute in Florence. Uh, she emigrated, uh, so to say, later to the US, and there she stayed and has succeeded with great distinction to become, I would say, one of the greatest living European public intellectuals. Uh, 
Uh, Nadia has taught and researched at New York University, the University of Pennsylvania and Princeton, in Sao Paulo and also in Pisa and Torino. She's currently Kiriakos Tsakopoulos Professor of Political Theory at Columbia University in New York. I am told that more than a few of her students rank her as the very best teacher they ever had. That was a leak from Columbia University and I can show you the documentation. <laughs> Uh, you may know as well that Nadia's brief actually runs well beyond university life. She is a public intellectual. Public intellectual in that she aims to keep alive politics in the wider domain of uh, society and government. Uh, a public intellectual in that she sees that her job is to nurture public discussion and to nurture public controversies and disputes about basic matters of justice, who gets how much, when and how and whether they should. I urge you to read her because she writes beautifully and is an engaged and engaging political thinker and writer on democracy. You may know that in 2008, the president of the Italian Republic awarded her the Commendatore della Repubblica, commander of the Italian Republic for, quote, her contribution to the study of democracy and the diffusion of Italian liberal and democratic thought abroad. Nadia Urbanati is the author of many interesting and pace-setting and prize-winning books and articles. She regularly uh, offers media interviews. And in these dark times which are upon us, with the Italian and wider European disintegration still in its early uh, stages, and given her conviction that parliamentary democracy has probably entered a deeper and deepening crisis than it has for a generation, it's not surprising that business is booming for Nadia. She is much in demand, and you will hear her soon on Late Night Live with Philip Adams uh, here um, on The Wireless, as it's called. I recommend to you um, a book of hers, a very unusual book called Anti-Egalitarian Mutation, published in 2016 in uh, English. That was an earlier Italian version. It is a book-length interview about her intellectual life and her political concerns with La, La Repubblica's New York uh, correspondent, Arturo Zampaglioni. Um, Professor Urbanati is, uh, you may know as well, is an editorial contributor uh, to the Italian newspaper La Repubblica, and she publishes articles in the culture section of the Italian newspaper Il Sole 24 Ore. Um, I don't know how to translate it, uh, something about 24 hours. Uh, um, Nadia, um, it's four o'clock in the morning, New York time. And um, it's a bit rich, as we say here, to ask you to stand up and speak to us about um, the false friends of democracy, about power and opinion and truth and the people. But that's what you very kindly and generously agreed to do. Um, I want to say again, benvenuto a Sydney, uh, and we look very much forward to hearing what you have to say. Welcome. Well. I feel very moved by this presentation, also because something I didn't know about it, about myself, that is my students consider me a good teacher. This is a great, for me, uh, gift um, and recognition. So I thank all of you for uh, your attendance, and John in particular for inviting me, and 
all the stuff of uh, Sydney uh, Democracy Network and Sydney University. It's the first time that I am here in the new, new, new world, and I'm very uh, excited indeed. Now, the topic this evening is not about that. <laughs> it's not about uh, um, the Five Stars Movement, even, even though if, you have, if we have time and you have some question to ask, I will ask you to ask me that question. Because it is an interesting movement, and uh, I, I think it would deserve some, um, some words uh, beside the one that I will not uh, instead say in my presentation. My presentation is a derivation of the book uh, that I published three years ago on uh, um, disfigurement, democracy disfigured. So democracy is uh, the only game in town today, and people are getting bored. This looks like a joke, but uh, it represents, in my, in my opinion, fairly well the condition and perception of democracy today, particularly in those countries that are, defi are defined as consolidated democracy countries. So constitutional democracy, if we remember it, was born um, with an intense ideological meaning has a reaction against totalitarian mass regimes uh, after World War II, and it gave birth to an impressive corpus of ideas, theories, economic, socioeconomic, and political innovations. It was very self-celebratory. It is very self-celebratory. The ideology of democracy enjoys such an undisputed global hegemony today that even constitutional reforms that limit civil liberties, that contradict the spirit of political openness and competition for government, are made in the name of democracy as more genuine affirmations of democracy's values. Think about Hungary or Poland or even Venezuela. Now, more explicitly, we are witnessing the coinage of oxymoronic terminologies like authoritarian democracy, like um, technocratic democracy, like meritocratic democracy. They are all oxymorons. Not, it's impossible to have things like that. Recently, Parag Kanna, the author of Technocracy in America, 2017, she proposed to fix Americans' broken democracy by injecting big doses of technocracy or government base, I quote, on expert analysis and long-term planning, not even five years planning, but long-term planning, rather than, I quote, short-term electoral whims. So democracy is on the defensive at the level also of political science as we register the success of positions that radically question the idea of democracy as popular control or even the value of voting. Fact seems to prove these critiques. US presidential elections, the Brexit referendum are sometimes used, actually more frequently, um, then sometimes, in fact, very frequently, used as striking illustrations that democracy is capable of bad decisions, that uh, people give and vote badly, 
that there is a bad and a good way of voting, which is very strange indeed. More recently in my country, uh, and you can, then I can mention it, these elections and uh, the FISAS movement got 32.5%, uh, the, second, the second time that it uh, uh, ran in election, and that was seen by somebody as the moment of cataclysmatic decline. Democracy is at the end. So how to defend democracy from all these shortcomings, from these lamentations, from these complaints? In trying to answer this question, several political theorists have in the last decade uh, or so even devised a set of conceptualizations on which I would like to, uh, to focus this evening. Three in particular. Epistemic interpretation of deliberative democracy, populistic rendering of the collective subject called the people, and finally, the uh, reference to the force of the audience in order to uh, exalt the personalization of a plebiscitary kind of consensus. So three forms of disfigurations as I used to say in my book. Now, in this lecture, I would like to illustrate the main idea I have of why we should be worried about these kind of trajectories and why we should not think that epistemic, that populist, and plebiscitary are good solutions to the decline of trust in democracy, even if they come as strategies to cure democracy's bad performances. But sometimes cure is not so good for the disease. So let's first of all introduce democracy, at least as I would like to defend or to propose. I propose the idea of democracy as a form of politics and government by means of opinion, without shame. Opinion is the golden uh, uh, moments of democracy. Democracy, particularly as in, in its representative form, but not only, today is a diarchy. I use the word diarchy is two authorities, means diarchy, two authorities system, and the two authorities are the following. The will, by which I mean the right to vote and the procedures and institutions that regulate the making of authoritative decisions at the state level. I call it the will because in the modern tradition of sovereignty, of uh, the theory of sovereignty, the will is the, uh, um, the mark of the sovereign power. So when we go to vote, this is an expression of the will in the classical sense. The other authority is opinion. By opinion, I mean the extra-institutional domain of public influence, movements, associations, and political judgment in the informal sense without any pretense of having an authoritative um, conclusion. So these authorities, they influence each other and they cooperate, but without merging. This is very important because it means that when we debate, when we discuss, when we organize, when we criticize, we somehow participate in the making of democracy without any pretense of giving those ideas we propose an authoritative translation immediately. 
So me mediation is part of the game here without uh, uh, any uh, direct implication even to, uh, even to election. This is what democracy is about. And it was like that also perhaps in the ancient time in which people used to talk in the forum, used to talk in the agora, and then to the assembly. There were there was, again two moments and two dimensions of their doing or their acting. So the conceptualization of democracy's diarchy makes two claims. First, the decision and opinion are two powers in the hands of the citizens. Second, that they are different and they should remain distinct, although in need of constant communication. This is very important. It means that opinion, the domain of opinion, is the domain of participation in the way in which we immediately perceive. By participation, in this case, I mean what participation means technically and in the world. The meaning of the word participation comes from participare. It means two things in one, taking part and taking side. Which means that we cannot participate if we do not side somewhere in the space of politics. Could be pro or against. But we cannot simply participate by staying outside of any uh, affirmation here or there. It's impossible to have participation in the indifference of uh, location. This is very important. Participation, it's, it implies partisanship. Cannot be without. When I say for or against, I mean partisanship, in this case, participation. And this is what I called the domain of opinion in the general term, which has connections with the moment of election, institution, and government. So these two domains, these two diarchy of power, this arche. It is important that we understand that democracy is a twin power in which the decision is one component, not the only one. One component. So the forum of opinion partakes of democratic sovereignty, although it does not have any formal authoritative power and is force, is external to institutions. This is very important because it is, democracy has a double meaning as we learn from the first, perhaps, the first. Uh, documents of modern democracy, the agreement of the people, 1649, in which the Puritan listed both the desiderata of uh, um, their own desiderata, that is individual suffrage and electoral representation, but they also took, uh, um, specified some potential deviations and perversions as if they wanted to alert their fellow citizens that never they should think that having a government legitimated by their explicit and electoral consent would mean that they would enjoy secure political authority. So to have a vote is an important moment, but it's not the only one. So we see here the tension between state and democracy. State as a body of institutions which commands coercion when needed, and democracy as a political presence that also translates in laws at the state level. So this is 
Very important we make and we keep this distinction, at least in my view, because it implies that democracy presumes a perennial disagreement that is never solved, even if when we make a decision, even if uh, when we go to vote and we produce an outcome, this outcome is never the last one. And this for democracy is quintessential because there is never the last decision in a democratic sense. So this implies disagreement between legitimacy and trust, disagreement between decision and judgment. So democracy does include the anti-establishment mode. Because if it is true that it is a dialectic between majority and opposition, when the opposition aims to become a majority, needs to use the argument of anti-establishment against the majority. So anti-establishment is not in the end of populist only. It is part of the democratic uh, aspect in this sense. Now, if we assume this diarchic approach, we can say that Today's challenges are of two kinds, in my view at least. First, although they can never be truly separated, these two authorities need to operate separately and remain different. We really don't want that the opinion of the majority becomes one and the same thing with the sovereign opinion or with the state, as so populists sometimes they seem they want. And we don't want that our opinions to be simply a passive reaction to the spectacle that some leaders put on stage as plebiscitary democracy seems to propose. Or we don't want even to change or to amend so easily our opinion in the name of true data or epistemic validity. The second kind of challenge is that representative democracy is governed by means of opinions and also means that the public forum keeps state power under scrutiny and should be ruled according to the same egalitarian principles that is embodied in citizens' rights to be self-governing. So we have thus to take into account that the circumstances of opinion formation are crucial in a democracy. So citizens' right to an equal share in determining the political will ought to go together with citizens' equal opportunity to be informed, but also to form, to express, to voice, and to give their ideas public influence and presence. So this is, for me, what democracy is. And part of it, it is precisely also monitoring, as John would say, monitoring because it it presumes that the citizens enjoy an equal right to exercise their opinion and judgment and to check. But it's not only monitoring. The other part of the story is that we really need to also partake in decision making. And thus voting or election is something equally relevant. Now, having said so, and I come here to to understand or to try to understand together what are, in relation to this diarchy, uh, the characteristic of doxa. Because doxa is, as I said, the golden rule of democracy, which is not based on truth, but on something that, according to Plato, was in between. It was the shadow kind of neither true nor false, but in a perennial motion in order to amend itself, to change. So this doxa 
has three, has three characteristics, three uh, roles, in fact, cognitive, political, and aesthetic. Cognitive, because we seek information in order to make judgment. Political, because in seeking information, we side with or against, and thus we produce partisan reasoning. And aesthetic, because in the very moment we want to control and to check, we call for publicity and transparency. So we have three roles of the doxa. They are together. They operate together in a democracy. Now, the three forms of disfigurement that I mentioned at the beginning, that is this uh, um, epistemic, the populist, and the plebiscitary, they separate these three doxa roles, and they focus on one, or they make one extreme and only um, identical with doxa. So they have a position of radicalization of one of the three characteristics. So I start with one, with the first one, epistemic. Now, the epistemic today is a strong interpretation of democracy. There is a, an important uh, vein of analysis in epistemic, as much as in populist, less perhaps in plebiscitarian, but is practically present everywhere, if not in the academia, certainly in politics. Each of them radicalize one aspect. The target is, indeed, change the doxa by as as ascribing to it only one of the three. Now, let's start with the epistemic. Epistemic theory is concerned, very much concerned, with partiality. It proposes to depoliticize democratic procedures and make them a method for achieving correct outcomes. I'm quoting or neutralizing partisan as majority-based decisions, rather than outcomes that are simply procedurally and constitutionally valid. So supporters of the epistemic deliberation want to rescue democracy from what is cacophonic, noisy, pluralistic, partisan nature. But in doing so, they narrow so much the process of opinion formation that they render it as simply a form of judgment in the same mode as in the jury. When we are in the jury, we make judgment on a subject. We, as we know, we don't decide the object, we don't decide the procedure, we don't decide what we have to consider in order to make that judgment. And thus, in order, and we do so, and we are asked by the judge to do so, in order to reach an impartial and unique unanimous outcome, which is supposed to be the just verdict in relation to an event happened before us. So the epistemic theory of democracy applies this view and this uh, process of judgment, which come from the jury system, to politics, identifying thus judgment in the juridical with judgment in the political. The goal is to produce an outcome that is unanimous, not simply majority. Majority minority or majority opposition is not supposed to be a kind of uh, failure 
because a good decision would have to be unanimous if it's really so. So majority and opposition is supposed to be or counting something that we use when we cannot achieve unanimous verdict. And this is what, according to the epistemic, is very important. So disembodying the judgment from partialities in order to achieve what democracy never promises to achieve, an impartial outcome. So there is a struggle between philosophers and democracy since ever. And the struggle is here again in the form of epistemic pretension or epistemic um, goal attributed to democracy, which is something indigestible for democracy. Now, I have a question to ask to the proceduralists, which is the following one. Do you believe, proceduralist theorists of democracy, that we learn how to vote by voting? That is, do you really believe that we can perfect our decision-making ability by using the procedures of voting? I don't think so. What does it mean to learn to vote by voting? It means nothing. We vote every time we vote as we like, and every time people think that we made bad voting. So does make it sense to judge voting from the point of view of epistem? It doesn't, in my view. Now, second, what does it mean that a good procedure is good and democratic procedure is good because it promises and gives us a good decision? Good in relation to what? Who decides in democracy that a decision is good if not the same very actors who go to vote? So unless we don't change the sovereign power, the judge is always the same, and it is people who go to vote. So there is no way of taking judgment away from the sovereign and giving judgment to what? Who has the last word in a democracy? So in my sense, that makes no sense. It doesn't mean that there is no competence in politics. Not at all. In politics, there is competence. There is in the executive, in the bureaucracy, in the judiciary, in the legislative committees that assist the lawmaking work. Yes, there is a lot of knowledge and a lot of data, a lot of objective knowledge, as they say. But knowledge and competence are surely essentially as ancillary to political judgment and decisions, not substantive. This is very important because otherwise it makes no sense at all to uh, desire democracy. And by the way, if we go back to history and we go back to Thomas Paine, to um, Susan Anthony, they vindicated and they asked for the right to suffrage not with the argument that thanks to that we would have wise decisions, but thanks to that we would be free from slavery, from domination. So voting power or simply power of the citizen in the um, um, decision-making power is an issue of freedom. It's not an issue of competence 
Although we, when we vote, always we claim that we vote for the right person or the good topic, issue, proposals, fine. This is what we do. But doesn't mean that the procedures makes us doing that. And this is very important because even good outcomes, even good decisions, they are open to change and they, be, they can be revoked. How is possible that a very good decisions, a very good policy, nonetheless cannot stay there forever? Because if it were truly good, just and competently speaking, uh, epistemically correct, it should stay there forever and not be revoked. So I remember in my country when there was a, this whole, the historical compromise by the Communist Party and the, and the other groups to create a strong constituency of 90, 80% of support in order to have a political change that would bring the country perhaps closer to a kind of social democracy in action then Bobbio, Norberto Bobbio, a great scholar of philosophy, uh, uh, politi political philosophy, asked them, but suppose that you are capable of making those decisions, of producing a good socialist democratic country, then what? If you don't abolish, if you don't abolish election, you don't have any guarantee that next time those reforms will stay. What do you do? So not even good decisions have the certainty of lasting. Now, my question to this epistemic is the following. Why? Why in this time? Why precisely now we need to have this attention to the epistemic moment? Why so many institutions of monitoring, regulations, are so relevant and they span their say much more than political institutions do. What is the urgency of uh, calling attention to epistemic democracy these days? Perhaps because there is a growth of disaffection with political democracy. Not the epistemic, with political democracy. For instance, I quote, some political scientists report on survey data that shows that, I quote, most voters are deeply confused about their own interests and they perhaps don't even know what they are doing when they vote. And since, as we know, votes is power, as Engels used to call it, is like a stone, paper stone, it may hurt not only us, but also the others. So should we give this important power in the end of those who use it badly? So I think that beneath all those, although they don't, of course, want, because these epistemic theories, they really want to rescue democracy from his, uh, these uh, imperfections, but they reveal a sense of uh, discomfort, of this functional vision in relation to voting and the voting system. Thus, the populist may be right when they uh, operate, when they act, when they write against the 
Platonist, as they call it. Although, unfortunately, they reach a conclusion that is not preferable, and they come here with populism. Because the populists are a, like a mirror image, you know, the mirror is the opposite, the mirror image of the epistemic, in the sense that they answer to the traditional accusation of the ignorance and incompetence of the masses of voters, not by giving the masses the same epistemic quality of the few, but instead by questioning altogether the idea of extending to the collective the character of individual rationality or the rationality of economics or the rationality of the juridical. As Ernesto Laclau, perhaps the most important philosopher of populism, for him, populism claims that the masses are indeed rational in their presence. But they are so not because of the rules and procedures they use in order to create good decisions, but because they make a strategic use of myth Sim symbols and rhetoric in view of creating an hegemonic narrative capable of unifying all the many claims in the population and create the collective subjects uh, represented by a leader. And of course, with the support of intellectuals. So populist is indeed um, a genuine form of assault on doxa in the moment in which it wants to create the political unity of the people in a way that this unity is so encompassing, so unified, that does not make much room for opposition. So Doxus loses his autonomous status here when the democratic <coughs> procedures are instrumentally curbed so as to allow strong majorities to rule. And moreover, there is the sense that that collective unit is the good people, the only good people. With the others, could be the few, could be some minorities, could be the uh, elite or the casta, and the others are outside, are kept outside of the good people. So as do you remember Trump when he gave the inaugural speech when he was, um, when he became president, this was in January the 20th, 2017, he said, through me, the people is back. As if before, with the other majorities, the people were not back. As if the other majorities were fake majorities. There are people is one, and only if it is crowned by one good leader, then it is the good people. So that is a danger uh, connected to populism, which can be uh, paralleled with uh, the danger that Aristotle uh, saw in demagogy or demagoguery. Meaning, in relation to direct democracy, we don't have a direct democracy, we call it populism, because populism is a form of representation of the people through the embodiment of the leader. Now, it is like a democracy in the sense that, like in Aristotle's five models of constitutional government, the demagogical one was the extreme one at the border of 
democracy, or the today we call democracy, the border of constitutional government in this case, after which another regime would appear. So, of course, populism is inside of democracy, but it is inside in the extreme borders before something else may happen. So populists across Europe, for instance, now, Eastern Europe in particular, but also Western Europe, and in Latin American countries, in some cases, they use the media to merge the opinion of the majority with the opinion of the people. They, have, they acquire large consensus, and they use state power in order to strengthen their constituency. So questions, as uh, many scholars have shown with data, questions of corruption, of uh, patronage, and finally, uh, the use of state prom or state to promote their own majority. I come thus with the, to the last, which is plebiscitarian, because it's very connected, although different from populism. Now, we lost, or we missed, actually. We don't know. We don't know anymore what is plebiscitarianism. After the end of mass regimes before World War II, where plebiscitarianism or plebiscitary government were everywhere, particularly in Europe, we seem to have forgotten about this phenomenon. Yet, plebiscitary democracy in a democratic situation, thus not in a non-democratic situation, presumes a vision of the people that is very different from the vision of the people in democracy, first of all, because it is a people that is supposed to be a big eye, a visual role of the people, like the public, which has to judge, to react, and to respond to the action, to the staging performance of the leader. So the relationship between the leader and the masses that the plebiscitary democracy proposes is, and we see it in many countries, particularly in Europe, but not only, but also in the States, I would say, it is a relationship between the masses are there to acclaim, to judge, to ask for um, transparency and publicity by, by the leader. For some theories does, Plebiscitarianism is a true form of democratic control on the leader because the leader is forced to expose himself to the masses and to the people, to the audience, in order to be seen, evaluated, and judged. Thus, who better than the people can control the leader? Thus, there is the sense that by giving himself to the public, the leader puts himself in the end of the people or in the end of the public himself. This is a fantastic interpretation that ends up by dividing the people and, or the, 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 the public and the few, by giving the will to the few and the opinion to the many. So we are simply watching, judging, examining, whereas somebody else that is the minority, the elite, is acting. This is exactly what, or quasi, Joseph Schumpeter 
wrote, I quote, democracy means only that the people have the opportunity of accepting or refusing the men who are to rule them. Accepting or refusing means approval or acclamation, sign of investiture and confidence. So unlike populist does, which embodies the idea of mobilization, which wants people mobilized with the leader, in this case, instead, plebiscitary democracy narrows the role of active citizenship and transform our doing simply in attendance, like in the theater, like in the Forum of Rome. If you remember, the patricians had in their hands politics. The plebeian had in their hands the opinion, which was very strong in determining the way in which leaders moved. It is true. But since there was a division of labor, so that the two authorities were not interconnected, but were separated, uh, the two authorities I mentioned at the beginning. So I am thus at the end of my journey through these disfigurements. I don't have any kind of uh, recipe to do what and how can we do, how can we operate in a situation in which uh, our democracies are truly changing. First of all, because parties are becoming cartel parties totally inside of the system, totally inside of institutions, and no longer kind of organized participation uh, of the citizen. Second, because the medias have changed too much to be simply ignored. It is impossible not to see the change from paper media and even tele television media to internet media, which change completely the way in which opinion operates. Now, I don't want to disclaim these huge uh, important elements of differences when I analyze these three disfigurements. They need, they need to be taken into account. Yet, I don't have a recipe, but at least some general criteria in order to judge about democracy in these difficult times, not impossible times. Democracy had always difficult times. This is part of the game. Crisis and democracy, they are really twins. Crisis, uh, it means in Greek, judgments, which is a process of putting into question something. So there is no critical crisis in democracy that democracy cannot face. We know that. And we are very um, conscious of the potentials of innovations and adaptation of democracy, the most innovative of the system that we are capable of uh, dealing with, political system. Yet, some general criterion needs to be uh, listed in order to understand why we, make, we make this criticism personally, why I do make this criticism, and why we should take seriously into consideration what democratic citizens promise to themselves. That is, what kind of promises democracy makes. Does it promise good, perfect decisions? Does it promise a kind of epistemic clarity that eliminates biases, prejudices, and division of opinions? Does it uh, promises 
a unity of the people under a leader in order to eliminate discrepancies and conflicts inside? Does it promise a kind of plebeian policy of control of the leader like in the Roman Forum? I don't think so. I think the democratic citizens make themselves three promises which, with which I, uh, I'm going finally, finally for you to close. First, the first promise is that all, can, all of us can freely and publicly disagree on the interpretation of what we think fundamental. Think about some fundamental issues for democracy, which is equality. How many different views of equality do we have? So democracy is, does the system in which we freely and publicly disagree on something we consider foundational. So even if we assume equality as a given because we don't want even to think of living in a society in which there is no equality, at least on paper, we have so many different views of, the, of equality, a different interpretation that is very hard to say that we have a unanimous conception of equality. This is true for free speech. This is true for freedom. This is true for security. So democracy is a permanent work of disagreement, even on things we suppose we don't disagree. Second, citizens promise to themselves that they resolve temporarily their disagreements with decisions that are made by counting equally each individual's votes. This is crucial because counting equally is something so revolutionary and so obscene for many that is by itself an act of uh, courage. So we count as one, not as many or two or three, one. Each of us, no matter whether we have more or less power, doesn't mean that we don't have power. No, of course, in society we do have. Since the ancient time, democracy never promised to equalize conditions, uh, social. It promises that all inequalities in society and economics wouldn't translate in political power. That is a huge uh, important promise. It's very difficult to maintain and to uh, be consistent with. But it does not promise unanimity. It promises disagreements and majority opinion, majority opposition view, not unanimity. Third, they promise each other that they will not accept considering any decision to be the last one or to be unquestionable. So we can say that democracy is the system of the penalt decision there is never the last one. Even constitutions can be rechanged, so much so that some constitutions put limits to the possibility of changing the constitution because they presume that otherwise citizens would like to change that constitution. This is a very important point because it means that there is truly a, it's a kind of can you say political relativism? Yes, Kelsen used to have this uh, uh, affirmation. Finally, thus, although we recognize the crisis of democracy 
in, in the three ways I proposed to you. And although, in my view, citizens make that kind of promise to each other in order to, not to solve, but certainly to criticize and see the problems, I think that there are some goods that democracy promises, truly. First, the lack of a categorical definition of the people. The promise that we make to ourselves is that there is not one definition of the people that is good to the point of disclaiming all the others. The people is an indeterminacy. And thus, it is open to different interpretation. This is crucial. It's good. It is a good because it, it opens the door to the open society. It opens the door to a society that is open to the possibility of redefining the people and itself. And second, the three promises I mentioned before come to another good. That is the dispersion of power and the openness of all decisions to, quest, uh, to question and to revision. That is, to a permanent, democracy can be defined a permanent work of social relations redescription, which no institution or person can claim to represent absolutely. So in this openness and in this indeterminacy, there are the two goods that democracy is able to promise to defend. And this is my presentation. Thank you so much. Well, um, people, you've been offered the right to disagree uh, or to assent or to divide, and um, we have about half an hour. We are recording this, by the way, so if you don't want to be recorded, I guess that means that you have to exercise your right. Invisibility. Yeah, invisibility and uh, silence. Um, Nadia has very kindly agreed to, to, uh, to uh, answer your questions. Um, could you say who you are briefly and uh, nice and loud? Uh, there, there are microphones, I think, yes. Uh, do we have, I can't see half of you uh, because I of the lights. Uh, could we have the first question, uh, please? Yes. Very briefly, uh, yes. no long statements, just uh, pithy questions. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Yes. The ancient Greeks in the assembly were very careful not to vote for people whom you called men of doxa or the colloi, because there was always the danger that this kind of person would aspire to monarchical or autocratic power, and it was safer to Vote for one of your own kind in the knowledge that he will not be capable of, of doing, doing that. Uh, and this was the opinion of uh, Xenophon, who was besides a, a supporter of oligarchy, but he was saying that democracy had mechanisms by which it defended itself. And, and this was one of them, uh, to make sure that the power always resided in the, the man in the street, for want of a better word. Do you agree with that? Well, this is a, a, as we know, this is what democracy was also for the critics of democracy. We, 
they are those who, gi who gave us the sense of what democracy was, because democracy didn't produce any theory of itself, and so we learn a lot about its enemies. Democracy is capable of uh, protecting itself in different ways. In the ancient case, because they didn't have in, uh, written constitutions, uh, or uh, representation, they use strategies like ostracism and other strategies. Sure, sure. Right? Um, but they were also able to control themselves within the procedural system by, with the, by controlling the proponent of a proposal in the assembly, by controlling after the decision was made, this particularly uh, in, in the late uh, part of the uh, Athenian democracy. So there were many systems of controlling itself and controlling it in relation to the so-called enemies. Yes. A, a sort of written constitution well, was in, the but, Aristotle's uh, constitution or so-called constitution. I suppose that would be the closest to our modern. Yeah, but but you know, they could have any assembly could have practically yes. intervene and change. So it's not the kind of written constitution we have No, no, today. certainly not. Thank you very much. Good evening. My name is Prudence Folds. I'm just wondering how, what, uh, what your opinion is in relation to democracy when you have compulsory voting or voluntary voting, and maybe with voluntary you only get, say, 40% of the people who could vote actually voting. This is a very good question because, you know, although we tend to despise or not to give a lot of uh, relevance today to the voting or to the elections, we consider this a kind of vulgar, uh, secondary uh, reality. Many theories of democracy, at least, they do. Yet, the uh, enthusiasm that systems uh, puts in making a lot of difficulties in, uh, in the people exercise of the voting power, this reveals how crucially important is voting. So in many democracies, representative democracies, some of them, not many, some of them, the right to vote was compulsory. Then lately uh, it's been practically abandoned, this idea, apart from uh, Australia, which is still compulsory. Also, I think uh, Belgium is still compulsory. Um, I Personally, I think it is a good idea. In theory, it should be voluntary presence. We know that. But we also know that we are so involved in many other activities, so busy, sometimes working hardly, that we really tend to even not to do our job of sovereign that we should instead. So it is important at least to make voting costless for the citizens. If you don't want to intervene so directly as in Australia, but I would not be against, as that was the case in my country until a few years ago, if you don't want to go so far away, at least to make the right to vote costly, which means transportation should be on the um, book of the, of the public, of the state. It means that sh elections should be held on Sunday, not during a working day. So there are many strategies for making the voting a easier way or easier uh, duty to 
discharge. But I agree with you, it's a huge problem. And it's a strategy for keeping people out of the ballot. There are so many strategies. There is a book, by the way, just came out a few months ago, at least uh, in 2018, by Adam Chavosky, uh, Why to Bother with Elections. And he tells the story of the many endless strategies, more of them, not all of them visible, not all of them so majestic strategies of making voting so difficult, so hard, so, cost, so costly. Thank you so much. Very good question. Do you really mean that democracy as judgment is not in crisis, in deep crisis? Today? Today? Yeah, it is. But Because uh, one thing, couldn't you say that it is uh, exactly the belief in democracy as judgment which has made uh, democracy very blind to a politics of emotions and to identity politics? And couldn't we say that identity politics and politics of emotion today, for instance, with Trump, are beginning to smash and batter both the democratic institution and the democratic culture. For instance, Trump is issuing commands to institutions that they must not believe in science any longer, <laughs> and they should forbid all notions of evidence-based from dealing with their publics. They, he also has put people in uh, with uh, anti-global warming beliefs as, as bosses of the biggest environmental institutions in America. At the same time, his people, his movement, which is very active, which is very visible, that movement is undermining the very norms of, of the democratic culture yeah, about tolerance about acceptance and recognition of difference. So I have, I'm simply a, a bit appalled that people can say that democracy is not in a hell of a crisis today. No, I didn't say that it's not in a hell of the crisis. I simply said that it's very hard to define this crisis. Because as far as I remember all my life, I remember a crisis of democracy. Tell me when democracy is not in a crisis. It's always in a crisis. Every time we have an election, it's like a catastrophic crisis. No, no, yes, yes, I agree with you. But let's go back to, uh, let's go back to the Trump uh, issue, which is one example uh, of this crisis. Now, until we can criticize Trump uh, openly, without risking, I feel that we are still in the game. So I, otherwise, otherwise, it's very, very hard. Okay, there are different kinds of democracies. There are populistic democracy, and this is the case with Trump. Perhaps. So there are plebiscitarian democracy. There are I, I make the long list, right? Yet, since uh, the great Machiavelli used to say that popular regimes are very interesting because they are the only regimes in which they allow people to speak badly about the people. So we can speak badly about us because we are the demos and this is still an example of democracy. So until this is possible, 
although very unpleasant and aesthetic, very bad, yet it is still. Perhaps it's, it is rotten. Perhaps it is ruined, for instance, the way of corruption that was unknown in the political system in the states, in institutions. This can damage the system. But still we are here. We are talking about that. And we are questioning. And we are demonstrating. And this is a sign of democracy. Hi. Um, thank you, Professor Nadia, for your interesting talk. I'm just wondering um, about uh, false see. friends and democracy. Um, do you believe that, um, like, Syria is a good example of a of democracy? Syria? Syria. Syria? Yeah, because like, they got war there. Syria, they have a simple civil war. They don't have a government. Or they have a government, have a government, that, government is under, that is under a bombing for seven years now. So I wouldn't say at all that is a democracy. We cannot call democracy every kind of government. No, I think it's not a democracy. Hi, I'm Lucia Sorvera from this university. And uh, first, thank you for remembering that democracy is the space of disagreement. Uh, yeah. Because my impression is that today, also in, uh, within university institutions, uh, disagreement uh, is perceived uh, most of the time as a problem more than as a resource. And uh, maybe we should, we should think more about that. But I, my question was about the relationship between democracy and social justice. Because from your talk, I understand that the two don't not necessarily go together. Exactly. And in the historical experience, this is yeah. absolutely true. But isn't today this a big problem and a big issue? Yeah. I mean, does this, doesn't this you know, inherently disempower a democratic system? You know, I'm thinking about gender equality, inequalities, and I'm thinking about, you know, social and economic inequalities. Uh, shouldn't we address this more directly? Yeah, yeah. I think you, you are certainly right that democracy should, and should, which means they should, it means that they, they should really think about the relationship they have with capitalism and with the organization of the market and the labor system in a way that is so difficult to reconduce inside of, or to be conducive of a democratic ethos and practice. This is a problem. However, my question, my, my sense is the following. Democracy didn't, never promised a kind of social equality or social justice in itself. It promises a condition of equal competition an equilibrium kind of. So to, if you want to be even more explicit, democracy didn't sometimes deliver many good justice, social justice policies. It can give it, but taking also away, as it's happening almost everywhere in the Western uh, organization of democracies. Well, uh, in this case, partisanship, is very good because it means that if there are partisans for free markets or even erosion of the public through the private, should be on the other side a countervailing partisanship, 
which we don't have it anymore. So it is not that democracy produces social justice, but gives you the possibility of that kind of partisan conflict, which for me is more important, even more important. Um, sorry. Two questions. Yes. First one. Um, could you comment on the different models of democracy? The different? Models. Uh, let's just take Singapore. They, have, they believe they're democratic, but they've had one party uh, forever. Russia just had an election. They believe they're democratic. And if you talk to the Russians, they believe that they're democratic. Uh, China has, has a, a, a very extensive uh, democratic system, and the Chinese themselves believe that they're more democratic than the West. And say Brazil, uh, till 20 years ago, Brazil has been a dem democracy, but if you were illiterate, which is something like 60% of the people, they weren't allowed to, to vote. So all these countries who believe they are democratic and they're part of a democratic model, uh, could you comment on that? <laughs> okay, second question. As you said, this modern democracy came after the Second World War. This one, and, yes. Yes. And so it was basically an a agreement between the capitalist and the worker. Yeah. Let's not make a, a, a communist revolution, but let's share the, the pie. And there was an agreement with that. Yeah. And it worked till about the 80s. And then with the collapse of Soviet Union and the triumph... Of, of capitalism, the system is broken down. So now, if you elect uh, uh, Obama, he has indeed money was there for eight years. He didn't raise the basic wage, or he didn't, you know, have less uh, blacks in the, uh, the the penal system than etc. And uh, same in Australia, whoever you elect, uh, we put the refugees into uh, into. Uh, into concentration camps. Thank you. So the first, uh, I will be telegraphic with the first one because the fact, as I said at the beginning of this lecture, the fact that there is this ideology of democracy, ideology, it means that it is an hegemonic power through the war, in global, so that every, all countries want to be or to appear to be as democratic. This is a sign that Non-democratic governments, although they are there, they don't want to appear as if they were non-democratic. This is, though, is a sign of the international hegemony of democracy, not of the fact that those countries are democratic. So we have to keep separate the ideology of democracy, which is hegemonic, with the organization of institutions in countries. So I don't comment on Russia, on Brazil in the past, on Singapore, which have some elements of democracy, they do have elections, but then you have to analyze in which condition these elections are held. Or China, uh, he knows better than me, of course, John, I mean, th these um, local government, we were talking yesterday about that, local institutions that are part of the democratic aspect, yes, yet we cannot say that there is a pluriparty system, open elections, so on and so forth. So there are elements. But the organization of the institutions 
the, the two uh, authorities I was mentioning at the beginning, they are not always together. And this, for me, is the difference. As to the other, you pose an important issue that this would require another, uh, perhaps, two talks. First of all, the global uh, force of financial and economic power, which implies that many democracies, and democracies are local, local meaning state-based, they have not the same power or the same resources in decision making that they used to have after World War II in the moment of reconstruction of societies. So we are in a very difficult, different moment. You are right, you were right when you mentioned in this compromise between labor and capital, which held until, held on until the Bretton Woods uh, decision that is 70. 273, that moment represents the beginning of competition between countries and also economics uh, getting separated from the political project of reconstruction. That is very important what you say, but this implies that we need perhaps to think in terms of global or, I don't want to use the word cosmopolitan because it has another meaning, but a kind of post-national organizations that allows the political aspect of democracy not to be so weak in relation to the international economic forces. More than that, I cannot in this short term. Could you tell us your view about the role that the Five Star Movement is playing in the Italian democracy? Okay, Thank you. Okay, so this is the promise. <laughs> well, this is an interesting phenomenon, and I suggest you to uh, know a little bit more about it, because um, there are some uh, essays in English uh, can, you can um, read. It is important because it's the first movement that is organized on purpose as an anti-party party. This seems to be a joke, but it's not. It is, on purpose, an organization without an organization. With the claim that the internet is the future for democracy, which can make people communicate and organize without the Robert Michels organization of the party in which you have an oligarchy ruling. So they claim to be horizontal because they are no party organization. So this is a claim first. Second, they claim that they can speak for all ordinary people. The word gente is very important. Gente means the folk, people, ordinary people, without right and left, without centrism, without any traditional distinction in politics. The only distinction is disagreements on what the government does, on what local politicians do, on the occupation of the political system by a small group of people called the elite. So they have this kind of, even a populistic kind of style and discourses. And they were able in 10 years to uh, achieve a, an extraordinary success, I have to say. <coughs> what they're going to do now is very 
complex and it is a very tricky moment because they have to show that they are capable of ruling. But this is a very democratic phenomenon though, we can say so, because ordinary people, some of them, some of them, totally unknown, incapable of knowing what does it mean to be uh, a political actor, they try. It is like um, when you want to try to, have a, a, to, to learn a job, you become an apprentice. They are apprentices of politics. Also because there is no longer the parties in the past that help people to familiarize with politics, to enter in the uh, administration locally and then uh, regionally and then uh, nationally. Now, nothing of the sort. There are no longer these kind of parties. What do you do? Between you and the state, there is nothing. And they are that, the expression of that nothing, because they don't, propose, they don't propose themselves as a new intermediary organization. They propose themselves as a we citizen directly related to the parliament. Somebody called this direct parliamentarianism, which is an oxymoron, no? but it's, uh, what can we say? This is one of the, the other things they do, very important, they assaulted not only the political parties organized, but they criticize strongly the traditional media. By traditional media, it means the professional journalism, because we are all journalists according to them. We are collectors of information. We don't need a profession called journalist which according to them, this profession is part of the game of politics in order to confuse ideas, to, to cover uh, up uh, over news. So the, the Feistas movement person is a Sherlock Holmes looking for news, wherever they are, and they post it and they discuss it, and this for them is a form of democratization of information system. Let's see what they are going to do or what other people allow them to do because there is a strong opposition against them. Even if they are less dangerous than the fascists or the Liga Nord, much less dangerous, yet they have a huge danger. They are the enemy because they are opposite to organization and parties. So they see the organized party, they see them as they're really uh, Attack. Mm. Okay. So I'm Aria. Yes. So uh, Australian democracy is very good. It's a clean, clear, uh, and check and balance, very good. So, but uh, I, I will talk about America. I talk about America. So uh, the uh, Professor Francis Fukuyama say like this, American system indicate and need to be changed or something like that. If not, it might be collapsed, something like that. You said part one, something like that. And then... Could we have I, the question, please? I, I, my we question is... No my my question? question is... So listen carefully. Yeah. And you agree or not agree? I got a friend. He's a Sri Lankan academic. Uh, and he'd be talking some politics in America. Yeah. And he got this... He repeat this thing very... Quite often, one sentence, uh, his remark is about something like this, uh, American system resemble bad third world 
authoritarian, authoritarian country. Resemble, copy, third world country. The, the comment is that American democracy is beginning to resemble bad third world. Okay. Do you agree or not agree? Well, I, you know, there are so many Americans inside of the United States of America, you know. I, I think that one, for one part, you may be right. There is an element of uh, poverty, destitution, misery in many parts of the country, jobless people, people without uh, now, uh, perhaps uh, for some of them, uh, healthcare even. Uh, the political system though, until now, was able to persist. So the issue of America is more social and economic in this moment. Uh, social policies are more needed than institutional, unless Trump produces some new scenarios. Until now, we didn't see it. And the resistance, the resistance of the state is very strong. Of the bureaucracy, then, against. I think we have two. Yes. yes. Hello. Um, I was just wondering if you think there's a way back when um, governments use the powers of democracy to more or less undo democracy, such as arguably happened in Turkey recently. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, how do you call the, 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 the Turkish? Do you call it a democracy now? Well, now I wouldn't say that it's a democracy. Uh, I would say now that it's an authoritarian regime, quasi-fascist. Why so? Because the journalists have been put into jail. Many magistrates have been fired. Many teachers have been fired. So, a regime that uh, hit so much these institutions of opinion formation and control, monitoring, well, it means that it is very preoccupied with the opposition and disagreements and dissent. Does it repress us in this way? So I would say that is a very problematic moment. And in this case, I would add, but we would open the discussion more here, that the European Union has, is responsible somehow of this debacle of democracy in Iraq, because they had the chance to attract Turkey more closely to Europe. Now they tend to use Turkey and they pay for it, so they support the regime in order to close borders and to keep the immigrants out. So, Europe is, in some sense, co-responsible of this dramatic situation, in my view. Uh, a a short, two short questions. The first is your tripartite model of democracy, epistemic, populist, and, and uh, plebiscitarian. It seems to me that the first is categorically and, in fact, separate from the other two completely. It has nothing to do, even in ideology, with democracy. But the other two could be analytically separated, but at least in the modern world, they bleed into each other. The, the populist leaders are, are, are charismatic, most of them, almost all of them. They speak on behalf, their rhetoric is populist, but that's as far as it goes. It gives them the plebiscitary authority. Yeah. And they are Chavez and Erdogan and, and Orban and, and Trump. So I'm just... Uh, 
asking really about the analytic thing. And the second thing, to follow on from this question, there is now a literature on what is called sometimes abusive constitutionalism, mm -hmm. stealth authoritarianism. Yes. That is, new ways of being anti-democratic yes. and also anti-constitutional. Nobody gets killed. That's not true in Turkey. But it is true so far in Hungary. It's true in Poland. It's in Hungary. Hungary. Yes. yes. So I'd just like a comment on that. This is a real novelty. It's not fascist. Uh, it's horrible, but it's something novel. I agree with you. Um, yeah. It's an excellent question, truly great. First, uh, I, I don't know how much time I do have, but in, in relation to epistemic, why I say so? Because there is a movement inside of practical democracy and theoretical democracy to expand the domain of uh, checking system or monitoring or simply analyzing what needs to be dealt with outside of the parliamentary assembly or the political assembly. So they make this argument in the name of democracy, meaning that since the population is not so much exposed to information, or they don't have time, or they are simply very partisan, it's better that we scream somehow all the issues and we find a solution, which would be the same solution they would choose. So there is this kind of paternalistic as assumption that I think uh, is very important. The other question uh, you made is crucially important. I make the distinction between populism and plebiscitary because populism is a politics of constitutionalization in terms of taking the place of constituent power. They want to reconstitute the power through the people. Whereas, does is a movement as a project, even of changing the constitution. The other one, plebiscitary, is a, pro a procedure. It's a procedure which has been trans translated, thanks to the media, into a movement of uh, acclamation using even election to acclaim the leader. You may say, but this is what the populist does. It's true. But they need to, they, they are separated somehow. We can have a plebiscitary leader without a populist movement. After all, the plebiscitary leader doesn't want so much movement, but simply the, uh, the public to, uh, to acclaim. As for the last point, that is the great point for us today. Because populism, I call it populism because I don't have another name in this moment. But you mentioned Hungary or Poland. We can add some other countries in Latin America. They are not simply the ruling majority imposing the heaviness of majority over the people. They are the right people claiming the right to claim the constitution for itself, that is a majority becoming the writer of the constitution or the rewriter of the constitution in order to make the ordinary politics into fundamental constitutional politics. There is no longer a distinction because the majority makes the constitution that is functional to the majority. Thus the, the Kelsenian distinction between two levels, constitutional and normal, and normal they disappears. Everything, the normal becomes constitutionalized. So the, the assault on the constitution 
is today what the populist does. And this is new, new in, 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 within democracy, within democracy, because it's not completely new, actually. But that would be a hugely uh, interesting topic for, for more than a few words, I'm sorry. <coughs> Um, Nadia, it's about uh, 5.30 in the morning in, in, in ah, New York, so it's it. breakfast time. I, I want to, it's time to go, but I want to ask you, in a way, a personal but also a deeply political question um, about Italy and future scenarios. Uh, I think it's well understood in the audience that Italy uh, did things first on a number of occasions. I mean, the whole vision of corporatism and, and, and Mussolini fascism. Um, the attempt to build a constitutional republic out of total war and uh, fascist occupation and collaboration. Uh, the attempt of the Pece to have some kind of vision of democratic compromise, a form of social democracy. Um, the collapse of a party system in the early 90s. Berlusconismo was well ahead of its time. I wonder if you had to summarize what would be your um, greatest positive hope for Italy and what is your greatest fear about the present dynamics? My God. But your description is very, very impeccable. I, the, the, the reason also that I love particularly the American author is called Valdo Emerson, 19th century, he's an old. And he used to speak of Italy as spermatozoic country. <laughs> Spermatic country. I don't know whether it's true or not, but I always like this expression because it makes me laugh. Um, but in order to say that there is something putting some seeds of novelty. Joking, eh? Um, today. Uh, I think that uh, on the optimist side of the story, this is an interesting phenomenon, and uh, Italy is a laboratory in this moment, for a new kind of parties organization. I don't know where we are going to, to go. I don't know where we are going to uh, approach. I, I don't know. I really don't know. I'm not uh, the capability of understanding where. But uh, the potentials are many, and they can be first shaking the opposition from the left and keep it, making it capable of reorganizing and thinking in terms of some values. Some social values of justice, which has been completely abandoned in the name of the market, privatizations. So revitalization of the left in order to resist this assault by other parties. This could be a good hope. The other good hope is that why not? The, the, the Five Stars Movement is a new movement, and we have to make peace with it and to be able to let them govern for at least we see what they're capable of. Why not? They are not. This kind of demonization that there is now going on in this country, in, in, in Italy, is uh, unbelievable, and it is unjustifiable. Because this is a democratic movement. It's not an anti-democratic movement. It's a little bit of a messy movement, uh, incompetent movements, perhaps, but certainly democratic. So let them rule if they have votes enough to rule. Why not? The negative. Well, the negative is that, uh, like this happened with, uh, with the Berlusconi, 
that a, a kind of technocratic uh, institution or technocratic solutions uh, is imposed by the Europeans or by the president in order to solve so-called the problem. This was years ago a disaster when this happened with Monti in order to get rid of Berlusconi. So we hope this doesn't come. This is a terrible scenario that will bring people on the square. This is clear. So it is, uh, that is the most negative that I can see. But since Europe today is very weak and practically moribund, I think that they don't have, not even the legitimate uh, voice to impose on Italy a change as they did in 2010. So I think that um, that are the two possible scenarios. So uh, I just wanted to say grazie mille for uh, your great intellect, your energy, your passion. Uh, and dare I say, it's pretty rare here at the university to have a speaker who kind of embodies uh, the very subject. I'm, I'm a populist. <laughs> no, I was going to say very democratic, but I think uh, you'd better talk to the people about that here. Um, we wish you a very good stay in Sydney, and uh, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.